This is uh, the 26th of January, and our lesson today that we're talking about is uh, Lesson 9 of Matthew Part 2, uh, which is a focus on Chapter 19 of Matthew. Um, everybody laughs when, when I say things like that, and the reason why is because everybody knows that we didn't spend much time in Matthew Chapter 19 uh, this week if we did our homework. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, uh, just to plan so that you know what to expect with part three, we will begin part three in about three or four weeks for the next three or four weeks after today. Actually, we'll be doing some lessons on on prayer, specifically liturgical prayer, uh, which people have been asking some questions about, so I decided we would try and resolve those with actually doing um, some uh, pre-prepared lessons. You won't have any homework other than praying. Um, <laughs> Let's open in prayer. Our Father, our King, you are so good and so great. Father, we, uh, we know that you are uh, beyond our comprehension, yet you have, you have uh, continually sought to reveal yourself to us. You have planned from the beginning that your revelation to us would be uh, complete. Father, we thank you for this complete re- uh, revelation of yourself in the person of Yeshua. Father, we thank you that you have uh, not left us to our own devices, that you have not left us to uh, figure out a way to you, but that you have provided the only way to you, and that is through Messiah's perfect work on our behalf. Father, we ask that as we open your word, you might reveal to us uh, your plan, uh, Father, that we might have a clear and uh, complete understanding of uh, your purposes in choosing Israel as your servant, as a light to the nations, to draw all men to yourself. Father, we thank you that you have uh, given us uh, this glimpse, and we ask that you continue to teach us in Yeshua's name. Amen. And I'm going to continue praying. This is from uh, Lahafta, uh, which is the follow-on to Shema. This is from Shacharit, uh, the Shema and its blessings. Shacharit for Shabbat. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your resources. Let these matters that I command you today be upon your heart. Teach them thoroughly to your children and speak of them while you sit in your home, while you walk on the way, when you retire and when you arise. Bind them as a sign upon your arm and let them be to fill in between your eyes and write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. And certain, established, and enduring, fair and faithful, beloved and cherished, delightful and pleasant, awesome and powerful, correct and accepted, good and beautiful is this affirmation to us forever and ever. True, the God of the universe is our King. The Rock of Jacob is the shield of our salvation. From generation to generation he endures and his name endures and his throne is well established. His sovereignty and faithfulness endure forever. His words are living, enduring, faithful and delightful forever and to all eternity. For our forefathers and for us, for our children and for our generations and for all the generations of your servant Israel's offspring. Upon the earlier and upon the later generations this affirmation is good and enduring forever. True and faithful. It is unbreachable decree. It is true that you are the Lord our God and God of our forefathers, our King, the King of our forefathers, our Redeemer, the Redeemer of our forefathers, our Molder, the Rock of our salvation, our Liberator and our Rescuer. This has ever been your name. There is no God but you. The Helper of our forefathers are you alone forever. Shield and Savior for their children after them in every generation. At the zenith of the universe is your dwelling and your justice and your righteousness extend to the ends of the earth. Praiseworthy is a person who obeys your commandments and takes to his heart your teaching and your word. True, you are the master for our people and a mighty king to take up your, their grievance. True, you are the first and you are the last. And other than you, we have no king, redeemer, or savior. From Egypt you redeemed us, Lord our God. From the house of slavery you liberated us. All their firstborn you slew, but your firstborn you redeemed. The sea of reeds you split, the wanton sinners you drowned, the dear ones you brought across, and the water covered their foes. Not one of them was left. For this, the beloved praised and exalted God. The dear ones offered him songs, praises, blessings, and thanksgiving to the King, the living and enduring God, exalted and uplifted, great and awesome, who humbles the haughty and lifts the lowly, withdraws the captive, liberates the humble, and helps the poor, who respond to his people upon their outcry to him. And then it continues with Nechamocha, uh, who is like you among the heavenly powers, Lord. Amen. 
uh, we looked at chapter 19, like I say, somewhat today, uh, this week. Uh, and my focus verses here, again, are not from Matthew. <laughs> uh, this is from Ruth, chapter 1, verse 16b. Treat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will, shall be my people, and your God, my God. That's Ruth, who is a Moabitess, who is the grand, great-grandmother of King David. And if you study scripture, you should always scratch your head when you read things like Deuteronomy 23.2. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of its descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Does God keep his word? Yes. How can we explain it? This, This week's lesson explains it. How can we explain it? And that is that Ruth was no longer a Moabitess. Uh, last week we saw this model of coming as a child, and Ruth was one of them, just like this. True humility. In First Peter 2, 2, and also in verse 5, 5, we saw that dependence upon God is the model of a childlike faith. Dependence upon God is the model. Submission is its action. There is no such thing as dependence without submission. There just isn't. You cannot say, I trust God and not obey Him. And humility is its clothing. It is is clothed with humility. Um, And we're going to close this uh, this part of Matthew. I chose to end at chapter 19, yes. Uh, By uh, by showing this comparison, the relationship between the written word, uh, that which we treasure, uh, because of its clarity and because of its completeness. The relationship between it and and the living word his Messiah, who we see as complete, and his work is complete, and is the complete and perfect expression. I mean, the the parallels are are just unending. We we love the comparison and the relationship. Um, Let's go to Matthew chapter 19, verse 1. Uh, briefly talk about marriage and divorce. Uh, one would think uh, that uh, all. Uh, all aspiring Jewish young men would want to be either a, uh, a lawyer or a doctor, all being encompassed within this uh, concept of a Torah scholar. Uh, consider a lawyer and consider the fact that as detailed as the instructions of the law are, there are so few in what we would consider a very major portion of law today. And as the laws regarding child custody or divorce or, or the laws of marriage, the fights between uh, various parties in the legal system. How much of the legal system of today is taken up by this? And yet the Torah hardly speaks at all about it. It's an interesting thought. Go to Matthew 19, verse 1. Now it came to pass, when that Yeshua had finished these days, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Then the Pharisees came to him, testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Uh, now, uh, Christian scholars read these things, and they're, they're, it's, it's very intriguing. Great books have been written about this passage or whatever else. But it starts off in a way that if you study extant Jewish texts, specifically the Talmud, you are immediately validating this passage. Oh, yes, this is definitely a a dispute of the day. This is definitely a dispute of the day. Because we have two houses being spoken of here. The house of Shammai, Bet Shammai, and uh, the house of Halil, Bet Halil. Halil and Shammai are two of the greatest sages of Israel. And they are, uh, they lived in the generation just before Yeshua. Uh, they are, uh, Hallel was probably still alive when Yeshua was a little boy. Most likely, he was actually in the temple when Yeshua, as a 12 year old, was in the temple uh, asking questions, giving answers. Um, so, what we see is we see this uh, debate. It's a debate between two, two parts of the Pharisee tradition. It is a debate that uh, uh, is actually being carried on into the second century with Rabbi Akiva. It's still uh, following through with this debate so they come to ask him a very good question this is not a trap Uh, every time we hear the questions oh they're always trying to trap him well sometimes they are 
the Herodians were very good at trapping him. We're going to see that later. But it's not always a trap. Asking questions is the right way to get answers. Asking questions is the way of learning. In fact, that's yeshiva style. We ask questions. We give answers by asking questions. I'm not very good at it. I hope you're better at it. We give answers by asking more questions. Yeshua is famous for it. He does it again and again. Uh, uh, the question is, Halil says that divorce for any reason is permissible even for something such as uncleanness. Now, uncleanness, and the problem is we're reading Greek here. We're reading English from Greek. Unfortunately, we don't have the, the uh, Aramaic and the Hebrew, the Mishnah and the, and the Talmud, as a contrast here, unless you study those. And so we have this disadvantage if all we ever read is the Greek and the English because we think uncleanness means something like, uh, I don't know, uh, something related to the temple or whatever else. And Hillel says, no, an uncleanness is even if she burns the toast. Actually, Akiva said, even if she burns the toast, that's an uncleanness. Something that's distasteful. The question is, which side of this dramatic... Oh, and Shammai says, no, only, only uh, because of uh, something, you know, completely uh, having to do with that which is pagan, idolatry, uh, going after other gods, uh, uh, all of that involved with uh, uh, the, the, the immorality associated with that. So we have these two camps. Which side is Yeshua going to be on? Where's bet Yeshua? Right? This is how he goes in. Uh, verse 4. He says, And he answered and said to them, Oh, he asks a question. <laughs> Have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and the join to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not, let not man separate. He, and, and immediately they're, they're certainly taken aback. <laughs> They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? What's the point? Deuteronomy 24.1, it actually talks about what if a, what if a woman uh, is put away by her husband. She's, she, she receives a get. A get is a certificate of divorce. She receives a get, uh, saying, I find an uncleanness in you. Uh, and she receives a get, and she goes and marries another man. And then, at a later time, that... that first husband then says well I take you back for my wife uh, and, and, and Deuteronomy 24 says no that's impermissible uh, what you know what uh, is, is this a is this a command is this a command it says give a certificate of divorce and put it away there's no command this is one of the problems this is one of the problems with uh, um, trying to figure out what are the commands and what aren't how many commandments are traditionally found in the Torah 613. Uh, we have positive and negative, far more negative than positive. And we have positive and negative commands. This is actually, Deuteronomy 24 is a negative command, but it's being portrayed as a positive command. That it's a good thing, right? It's a good thing. Um, let's keep reading. And you should, verse 8, and you should have said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but for be- from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, who has uh, something different there? Fornication. Fornication. What's another word? <clears throat> Any others have something different there? Okay. Uh, the, uh, the New King James, and King James says sexual immorality. Uh, who has uh, marital unfaithfulness? Okay, it's an NIV. Yeah. Uh, and, and what we understand here is that the tr- translators are placing their, they're placing their bias in this word. Okay. Uh, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery and his disciples said to him if such is the case of a man with his wife it is better not to marry oh wow his disciples said this is a very serious side that you've fallen down on we have Halil who says <laughs> you know whatever right or appears to say whatever Halil didn't you have to understand this is why people who read the Talmud oftentimes scratch their head and go how bad are these Jewish people? What are they talking about? <laughs> and the reasons why is because law says I must argue the extremes. Law demands the exceptions be eliminated. Right? Our legal system is a, is a representation of that. The extremes have to be fully vetted for us to understand where we fall. That's the, that's the essence of understanding law. It's also the es- essence of understanding God's commandments. It is. What are the extremes? Well, am I allowed to do this? Well, am I allowed to do that? Well, who would ever think of that? Well, I'm trying to find out. What's the line? Right? 
Well, this is the line right here. Vahasta. And you shall love. But the problem is that sometimes we, do, we separate God's commandments from his love for us and our love for him. And that's what we're experiencing when we read these things that are fun to talk about. It's fun to just dig deep and find all the idiosyncrasies of the law. But it can't be separated from this relationship. And this is what Yeshua is actually going to, isn't he? He's saying, what about the relationship? You know, you, you want to know this abstract answer. How does it play out in real life? Right? How does it play out in real life? What, what are you actually asking me? Rabbi Akiva did not divorce his wife for burning the toast. But that's what he said was allowed. In fact, the opposite. Rabbi Akiva and his wife were... Uh, are, it's, a, it's an enormous love story. It's a marvelous love story of Rabbi Akiva and his wife. That's in the second century. This is much later. But he was a follower of Halil. And then you have Shammai. <laughs> no. He's the one that's always got the stick, right? He's ready to smack you. Um, and then Yeshua comes down and said, You're talking about the wrong thing. What a stunning thought. What, where, where, where in the Torah did you read that there is a command for divorce? And that's his, that's his point. Uh, unfortunately, many scholars focus on these words and then make, make wonderful little theological or more importantly pastors study decisions on the basis of them except for sexual immorality what is it it's pornia is the is the is the greek word being used there and it is a very broad word but it does not mean marital unfaithfulness it does not mean adultery uh, those are further classifications that could be pornea, but that is not the meaning of the word pornea. The word pornea is most specifically focused upon, just like Shammai indicated, things having to do with idolatry. Sexual immorality having to do with idolatry. Pornea. It's where we get the word pornography from. Uh, it is the Greek word brought into the Latin that carries with it uh, the things associated with uh, temple, idolatrous temple worship, sexual immorality associated with idolatrous temple worship. Um, you know, it doesn't really hurt help to go any deeper than that because people are invariably trying to find excuses or compromise. Uh, I, I prefer Yeshua's word. Yeshua's word, by the way, also says that God is gracious and he understands our hurts and he understands our weaknesses and he understands very clearly uh, that sometimes things happen and he's a forgiving God and uh, I, I love Yeshua's, uh, Yeshua's answer uh, he immediately says Moses because of the hardness your heart permitted but from the beginning it wasn't so the ideal uh, we all know the ideal is wonderful Boy, would we not all love to have lived the ideal? I'd have a different life, I promise you. Uh, these, these words are uh, cutting to me. Yeshua's words cut me to the core. But I'm, I'm grateful that he's gracious to me as well. When we did, uh, when I did my homework, I had a little difficulty with those two words. Uh, Mot, I can't pronounce the Greek, and and Pornia, yeah. Right. And um, trying to search it out, the best I could, part of what I could find was that Pornia also included fornication. It's, it's very that's right that's right so uh, if you were if you were to follow other instructions within the Torah you would actually be able to determine that it wouldn't be fornication if a man and a woman uh, are engaged Joseph is the example Joseph and Miriam if man and woman are engaged and they uh, they uh, she uh, they have relations before they are married what is the requirement what does the Torah require? He must marry her and he may never divorce her. Where does it say they should be stoned? That is the penalty for adultery or fornication. Right. Yeah. So, so I, would, I would hold that fornication is the wrong use of the word here. Yes, ma'am. I had one rabbi say to me that the Torah's position, I mean, this was a, a Jewish rabbi said, the Torah's position on 
premarital sex is that there is no such thing. If you have sex, you're married. That's right. Well, and actually, I would not completely disagree with that. And so in a weird sort of way. Marriage one was the chuppah, and the other was. That's right. That's right. By consummation. I, 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 you know, I wouldn't completely disagree with that. You know, obviously, that's the extreme. Again, we're arguing extremes. And this is one of the things you have to be careful of. When you hear people discuss things like that and discuss things like this, especially in a, in a Jewish context, is that the purpose for arguing extremes is to establish boundaries. How far does the law go? <laughs> it was an interesting perspective, especially in light of what our society yes. is about. Yes, scary stuff. Listen, scary stuff. This is scary stuff. And I know, first of all, you cannot sit in a room like this and not have personal, uh, take personal issue with some of these things. Yeshua hits us between the eyes oftentimes. Uh, You can't sit in a group of believers and not have people that are touched with divorce or immorality. It's just, it's impossible. But it's not any different today than it was then. And he's just saying, what's the standard? And he, is, and he is calling us to a higher standard. Understand, they're arguing the limits of the law. Yeshua is calling us to a higher standard. What is that standard? And we read it at the very beginning. It is Vahafta, and you shall love. Are the commandments born within that? Yes, but not arguing the limits of the commandments. Always striving to find how well can I heed him? How can I improve my submission to him today? How can I be more obedient to his will? Let's move on. These are wonderful questions, and I promise you that this could not be resolved if we spent weeks and weeks and weeks in this portion. Suffice it to say that Vahavta is the standard and you shall love the Lord your God. Move on. Chapter 19, verse 16. And by the way, I appreciate you spent a lot of time in your homework on this. I really do. If you did your homework, I know you spent an enormous amount of time trying to settle this issue and I hope that you didn't settle it. (laughs) Questions are good. Chapter 19, verse 16. Uh, And behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? We're immediately drawn to this and go, what are you, stupid? You can't do anything, right? Listen, Yeshua doesn't answer him that way. (laughs) Uh, Let me first say, before we we move on, uh, I have a note here. Judaism in the first century believed that all of Israel has a part in the world to come. Go to John chapter 17, verse 3. The the end of every portion of, uh, there's a part of the Mishnah, the Mishnah, it's really hard. I'm, I'm sorry I use some of these terms sometimes without explaining them. The Talmud is a huge body of work. Basically, the Talmud is a Bible study that goes on for 600 years. That's what it is. The Talmud is a Bible study that goes on for 600 years. Where two groups, actually multiple groups, are arguing against each other. Across centuries. Sometimes you don't know the people who are speaking are separated by several hundred years. It's a, it's an, it's a remarkable study. It's a remarkable work, a body of work. As a piece of literature, it is unparalleled outside of Scripture. I mean, it is just remarkable. It's depth and breadth. What it covers is just amazing. It's huge. It fills up book bookshelves. Within the within the Talmud is the Mishnah. Each each portion, each tractate of the Talmud has a Mishnah attached to it. A Mishnah was something that was compiled. It was a compilation of the written the written oral law uh, compiled in the second century by Rabbi Yehuda, uh, the prince. Uh, Rabbi Yehuda compiled the Mishnah. He didn't write it. Compiled the Mishnah, which also has people arguing against about legal issues. <laughs> um, so, excuse me. Why are you still on the Talmud? I'm, uh, yes. Well, Mishnah is part of Talmud. The question that I have for you, though, is were the sages intent that that become as important no. as to not? No, of course not. But it is now. Well, it contains scripture. It contains scripture. It, it's not as important. It's it, it it it. When I study Talmud, do I study scripture? Yes, in a way. But be careful. No different than any other commentary. And I would say, actually, much better than most commentaries. And my my view is the Talmud is a marvelous commentary on scripture. In fact, I find no commentary that even comes close. 
but I understand him. Including mine, especially. Orthodox. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not quite fair. Not quite fair, yeah. It's not scripture. It's contains scripture, so it's studying scripture, one say. But it's not scripture. It does not carry that same authority. That's... I understand your reluctance on the basis of some things that are represented it being elevated to a point of scripture, but it's not. It contains God's name, which makes it a holy book. That's my sedur contains God's name. In addition to scripture, it, that means it needs to be treated as a holy book. Your homework, your Matthew study contains God's name. It should be treated as a holy book, not because I wrote words down, but because it contains God's name. That's that's another thing and that maybe that's lost on people is why it's considered a holy book is because it contains God's name. Uh, the Talmud also says that the works of the Menim thus contain God's holy name so they should be treated as holy books too at least some of the rabbis said that anyway John chapter uh, uh, where was I going I was talking about the Mishnah uh, yes John 17.3 uh, I was talking about the uh, oh, part of the Mishnah is Pirkei Avot ethics of the father teachings of the father lessons of the fathers Pirkei Avot is the very beginning of the Mishnah in the very beginning at Pirkei Avot at the end of every section it says all Israel it repeats it again and again as you go through Pirkei Avot it says all Israel has a part in the world to come it's odd. As I'm reading through Pekavot, at the end of every section, it says, all Israel has the part in the world to come. And I read some more, and then it says, and all Israel has a part in the world to come. And all Israel has a part in the world to come. In the first century, this was the mantra. All Israel has a part in the world to come. And it actually is based upon uh, a portion in Isaiah. And uh, Paul uses it in Romans chapter 11. He says all Israel will be saved. He's drawing from the same, the same understanding. John chapter 17, verse 3. And this, this is Yeshua speaking in prayer. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Yeshua, Messiah, who you have sent. What is eternal life? That they may know you. It's a relationship, isn't it? It's not a... This is the, this is the thing that is lost on a lot of people. It's not going to heaven. It's not having a part in the world to come. What is eternal life? To know God and Messiah Yeshua that He sent. That's that is eternal life. It's not something future. It's something now, right? Yes. All Israel has a part in the world to come is not wrong. It's just not. That's right. We have obviously to define what all what all Israel is and what is a part in the world to come. Is the word no here used the same word that's used in Genesis when Adam knew his wife? Uh, which one's that? Yeah, uh, no, it's not because it's in the Greek. Yes, yes. Oh, is it in the Septuagint that way? Absolutely. It's a Kabbalist idea. We won't go there. <laughs> uh, in John chapter 17, what's missing? What's the question they ask? What must I? What's the question he asks in chapter 19, verse 16? Well, good teacher, what things shall I do that I may end, may have eternal life? What's missing? What should he be asking? How can I know God? <laughs> right? That's the question he should be asking, isn't it? What's Yeshua's answer? I love, I love his answers. He's so good. He's just so good. Um, even if he wasn't Messiah, he'd be an awesome teacher. Verse 17. So he said, I'm back in Matthew 19. I'm sorry, I'm jumping around on you, aren't I? Chapter, chapter 19, verse 17. So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Why does he ask that question? Why does he ask that question? Well, it's an action word, like there's something he can externally do that will increase God enough to earn him. Why do you call me good? See, the King James asks, why do you call me good? But the Jewish, the complete Jewish Bible by Stern says, a little different, says, why are you asking me about good? Which is totally different. I, I like what Stern's doing. That's not what it says in a Greek, but I like what Stern's doing. And the reason why, Stern, by the way, that's a paraphrase, but he does, a very, I think, a very good job. I'm a fan of the complete Jewish Bible. Uh, but one of the reasons why I like it is because he's trying to get the very intent of what this passage does. This is a very, this is a difficult passage if you're not careful. I hope it's difficult. If it's, if it's too easy for you, then that, you don't get it. <laughs> Sorry. 
I read Matthew uh, Matthew Henry's commentary a lot, and I like him a lot, but he didn't get it. Let's move on. He said to him, uh, "But you, if you, this is the part B of uh, verse seventeen. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments." If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he's using life here as he's using the same word for eternal life, which is uh, uh, Zoe. Uh, it's, it's eternal life. So if you, want to have, if you want to have eternal life, keep the commandments. Is that true? And he said to him, just the, the, the young man asked back, which ones? <laughs> That's a good question. That's a good question. Yeshua says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Yeshua said to him, if you want to be perfect, sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. I'm sorry if you don't like the idea of a workspace salvation, but so far, that's all I've read. It is. I know that people have wonderful trying to explain, explain this. He's really talking about raising his hand and walking down an aisle. No, he's not. But he's not talking about workspace salvation either. Because the whole notion of workspace salvation is in large part a myth. It's a canard that one group slings against another. Christianity has long accused Judaism of having a workspace salvation. Judaism being picked on by everybody picks on no one except Christians. Everybody blames everybody else for having a workspace salvation as if their way is the better way. Obviously there's only one way and it's not a workspace salvation but the point is that Yeshua is neither asking him to move away from the position of having a workspace salvation nor is, he, or is, the, nor is the young ruler claiming a workspace salvation. He's asked the question how can I, how can I, have, a, how can I have eternal life? He's given the answer I've kept all the commandments. He's not saying and I should have it then. Why? Because Judaism of the first century didn't believe that you got it by keeping the commandments. Judaism today doesn't believe it either. You receive eternal life because you're Jewish. That's it. What part did you play in that? Is that grace? All those who are Jewish in the, in the room, you could maybe you don't treat it as grace, but do you consider it to be grace that you're Jewish? Absolutely. All those who are Gentile in the room who have been joined to, joined to Israel by the work of Messiah. Was that grace? Both, by the way, Jewish people who have joined, been joined to Israel by the work of Messiah is the same thing. By grace. By grace. By grace. There's no, there's no works involved here. And Yeshua is not arguing against it or for it. If you take this understanding of this passage as simply an, an argument against workspace salvation you're missing the point that's not the argument that's not even a part of the discussion the discussion is not a workspace salvation no one in this passage says I'm good enough that's why Yeshua asked at the beginning why do you call me good no one's good he didn't argue well wait some people are good the young, young ruler is not saying some people are good enough he's not arguing about being good enough or not good enough this is the thing that troubles me about the, the accusations against the law the accusations against the law is if you could keep it that would be good enough but you can't well, where, where anywhere did God promise eternal life to those who were good enough he didn't never in the Torah does he say if you do these things you'll live forever he says if you do these things you'll be blessed and you'll live. But if you don't do these things, you will receive these curses. On the, in the final analysis, what does it say? Though? Starting in Deuteronomy chapter 30, what does it say? But after you've disobeyed me, I will go to wherever you are, scattered across the world, and I will take you and I will lead you back to your land. And I will circumcise your hearts, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. And then in Jeremiah 31, does what he say? And I will place my laws upon your heart, and you will know me. Right? 
So we're not talking about this argument of, of works-based salvation. This, this passage about what people call the rich young ruler is being missed, and we miss it if we focus upon that. Uh, Within the very commandments of God, the law, are provisions for disobedience. Does that not make people scratch their head? Unfortunately, many people don't. They don't even understand that the very provisions for failure are embedded in the very thing that people say you must keep keep perfectly. That's a false theology that it was ever about eternal life. It just wasn't. It was always, always, always always about relationship. The giving of sacrifices was not about earning eternal forgiveness. It never was. It was about a relationship with God. If you wanted to go and have the e-ticket, excuse me, I'm an old person, I've been to Disney World for a long time past. If you wanted the e-ticket experience, you could go to Jerusalem and you could experience the presence of God in the Holy Temple. And to do that, you needed to be prepared in such a way that you wouldn't die in the process. That's the purpose of the sacrifices. It's not about, it never was about eternal life. Somebody asked me a question. Yeah, I noticed that all the commandments quoted yes. about his relationship yes. with his fellow man, yeah. that never, he never quoted any of the commandments That's that right. talk about your relationship with God. That's true. And commentaries focus on that. And that's very good. I, I don't think he can be overplayed, but that's a, I think it's insightful. There is a point to this, and we're going to get to it in a moment. Well, the, the other thing that I would say for this young man is he realizes something is missing. Isn't that great? I mean, you know, I, you know, at the end we see him going away, you know, wagging his head, oh, you know, woe is me. And everybody's like, yeah, so much for that. That guy didn't know anything, right? He didn't get anything out of that conversation. Uh, and I think that's unfair. I think this, this, this young man is actually uh, someone we should be really paying attention to. He's got something. He's got, a, he's got a question that we need to have answered as well. Let's move on. He asked which ones. Go to uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 21. Which commandments do I have to keep? So I guess you can be perfect and still not be good enough. <laughs> Well, you know, here's that. See, here's the issue. You know, the idea that people say, "Well, the commandments were just to prove that we couldn't obey God." Uh, I mean, if you could keep them, you could have eternal life. I know that's the way the four spiritual laws presentation works, but that's wrong because that wouldn't be good enough either. Why? Because I still don't have a relationship with the Almighty, and that's the purpose, right? Considered a source, it was Jesus. He's God. He was. He said. I'm, I'm not good. I'm probably good. Yeah, but he told that man, you could be perfect if you did this. I mean, but you're still not good enough, but you could be perfect. Go to chapter uh, Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, verse 21. And he says, And Yeshua, looking at him, loved him and said, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, take up your cross and follow me. It's a little bit different, right? A little bit deeper, deeper. Uh, uh, requirement. In chapter 19, verse 8, Yeshua's answer is looking at him, he loved him. He loved him. He didn't disdain him for asking this question. Look, look, don't you know that you can't keep the commandments? You know, you're, you're imperfect and you'll never get that God. He does. Yeshua has a deep love for him on the basis of this, well, who knows for what reason, but this question is endearing to him. Um, what we read in Matthew and Mark, by the way, if you read the Mark passage, very similar, are seen as horizontal commands. This is what, this is what uh, uh, you were talking about, horizontal commands, you know, things relating to my fellow man. Okay? The Torah is full of those. In fact, uh, I would say a large portion of the Torah, the law, actually contains the commandments how to deal with my fellow man. Uh, and uh, go to, go to uh, chapter 22, verse, Matthew chapter 22, verse uh, 39. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because we're going to study this in part three, but... Matthew chapter 22, verse 39. I do need to touch on it. Um, actually, go to verse 37. Yeshua said, actually, go to verse 36. Uh, teacher, uh, this is a, 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 a lawyer, a Pharisee, uh, a Torah scholar, comes and asks him, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law, in the Torah? The greatest commandment. Uh, this question that he asks, this answer that Yeshua gives, was like, uh, this, is like this is like the cheer. Uh, 
everybody knows to cheer, right? Uh, this is kind of like uh, the motto, you know, everybody knows this motto. Uh, this is not something like a big test. This is not a test. Uh, Shio's answer is, is the right answer. It's the common answer. In fact, it's, it's the answer in the Talmud as well. This is the answer. Uh, Yeshua says to him, You shall love the Lord your God, Vahafta, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is the first and greatest commandment. And this is Deuteronomy also, chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 11. The, the Shema has three paragraphs. Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11 and then Numbers 15. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, here's the problem. That when people read these... Actually, let me read, keep reading the next verse. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everybody says, well, there you go. The law and the prophets are done away with because these two commandments finish it all. And I'd say, that's absurd. Those commandments are in the law and the prophets. <laughs> so, uh, if we're going to do away with the law, you've just done away with the two greatest commandments, right? And these are the ones that Yeshua says are important. But what are these two commandments? One is love your neighbor as yourself, right? What does he say here? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Chapter 19, verse 19 of Matthew. What's missing? Thank you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. <laughs> Commentators have seen this He's focused on the horizontal and not talking about the vertical command, right? He's talking about the horizontal command. How I deal with my neighbor, but he hasn't talked about the vertical. By the way, love your neighbor as yourself is not a greater commandment. It's in the, it's in the Torah. It's Leviticus chapter 9. It's there. <laughs> it's always been there. Isn't that because you've got to love what you see and forgive what you see? Sure. The guy says, you've got to forgive. How could you believe I'm going to forgive you if you can't even see me? That's true. So, you, I mean, it's a, that's why he specifies. Absolutely. Uh, dealing with your brothers. Absolutely. You with your brothers, how you going to deal with me? That's exactly right. A man who says he loves God and hates his brother... It's a liar. Oh, James said that. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is not a new theme, and it's not, a, it's not done away with. This theme continues throughout Scripture. Love the Lord your God, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is, that is, that is the summation, not the obliteration. That is the summation of all Scripture, is it not? Love the Lord your God. And love your neighbor as so, yourself. I mean, that would be like just a given, like like almost a given. Yeah, else it's a maximum. Do, so you will obviously love God if you do everything else. Exactly. It's a. It is. It is. It's. It's a. It is a statement that sums everything up. That's that's what its purpose is. These two commandments do not replace 613. These two commandments, all 613, relate to these two commandments. Uh, people say I keep the Ten Commandments, and I'd say, well, there's not ten. <laughs> Uh, and my guess is if you say I keep the Ten Commandments you probably don't because you probably do good with eight <laughs> maybe nine uh, get definitely not ten uh, because the fourth always blows people away <laughs> which is <laughs> you shall uh, uh, keep and remember to keep the Sabbath yeah, actually which is two commandments uh, there are not ten commandments. It's the, it's the ten words. Uh, it's not just a matter of semantics. There are far more than ten. And the, and the people say the New Testament contains even more. But they're all repeats of what's been said. I want you to always remember that. They're repeats of what's been said. God does not come up with new stuff. There is a new thing. There is a new thing. But His Word is not the new thing. His Word is the ancient thing from before the creation of the world. Uh, he's doing a new work in us, but his, his word is eternal. Uh, what we need to understand is these hanger commandments are very important for understanding. And it's not a trick. Yeshua is not trying to say, if you could just be perfect, that'd be good enough. And that's what Matthew Henry and other commentaries would say. You know, if you could just be good enough, you could just really keep those commandments, but you really haven't. He does not argue with him. Here's my take on this, just as me speaking. I believe this young man kept those commandments probably extremely well. He's asking a good question. Where did that good question come from? He's not asking, how do I get to heaven? He's asking, how can I have eternal life? He wants to know, is there something about a relationship in this? And Yeshua's answer is an answer filled with love. Yes, there's something about a relationship with this. Sell all you have and come follow me. Is that not awesome? 
I mean, he, he, he answers the question not with a trick. He answers the question not with a challenge. Oh, by the way, raise your hand and come follow me. He answers the question with, I want you to be my disciple. Is that not amazing? What a, what a, what a profound thing this young man turns away from. The love of the Master and the follow Him. That's the relationship that he was seeking was right there. He was speaking to the one. It had nothing to do with salvation. It had to do with, do you want a relationship with God? Come follow me. Come follow me. It's, uh, it's, it's remarkable. Go to Romans chapter 10, verse 3, and we're going to have to finish up. As always, I'm running late. I got here early, but it doesn't help. Once your request is now. Yeah, yeah, if I had a nickel for every time somebody said that to me. <laughs> I'd had a nickel for each time somebody said that to me. I'd be a rich man. This is Paul speaking. For, though, for they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Messiah is the end, is the goal. It's the telos, is the word there, is the goal of the law, of the Torah, for righteousness to everyone who believes. Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. I'm sorry, Moses was not lying, and Paul quoting him is not trying to trick you. The man who does these things will live by them. There is life. There is relationship in obedience as long as it is Nahafta. And you shall love the Lord your God. How is it that we show our love? Yeshua said this in, in, in John chapter 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will obey me. How is it God asks this question? If you love me, you will obey me. That's what he says. If you love me, you will obey me. Obedience is not the relationship, but it is a movement within the relationship. It's how we respond to him. It doesn't earn his love. It doesn't establish our love. But it is a movement of love to obey him. Is it that we all know? John 3, 16, God loved us and he showed it. That's right. Prove it. You love me, prove it. That's right. And actually, I would say not just prove it, but it actually will be a movement within the relationship. Understand, if you have a relationship with someone, if you do nothing, you have no relationship. It's the action that makes that relationship, that makes that relationship real to you. And that's what I'm telling you. Go to John chapter uh, 5, verse 38. Oh, man, I wish I had about 15 moments. John chapter 5, verse 38. Yeshua is saying, saying, But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent you did not you do not believe. Speaking of himself. You search the scriptures in them. You think you have eternal life. They're not wrong. They're not wrong. They're right. And these are they which testify of me. But if you are willing to come to me that you may have but if you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Yeshua is saying I am the embodiment of what you seek for I am the embodiment of the commandments of God you want to argue the law come walk with him the people that denigrate the law denigrate the very master that they claim to follow he's not just a great Torah scholar he's the author He's not just a great understander or purveyor or, or, or uh, introduction to the law. He's the one who embodies it. He didn't just live it perfectly. He embodies it. Walking with him. I promise you. If you walked with him in the first century, if that young man had sold all that he had and, went and, followed, and followed him and become his disciple, he would have been walking an extremely observant life. <laughs> he wouldn't have moved away from it. He would have moved closer. And I think he was, I think he was pretty obedient to start with. Uh, Matthew 19, verse 21, and we're going to close with this. Uh, 
I'm, I'm challenged. I'm challenged by Yeshua's words because they uh, they remind me again of why I get uh, why I get uh, dusty and calloused and worn out. It's because I've stopped remembering that it's about a relationship with Him. Verse 21. Assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith, that's the right one. Yeah, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what is done to this fig. I'm still on the right place. Matthew 19, verse 21. Hold on, that's a good verse too, though. By the way, <laughs> just don't have time to read it. And Yeshua said to them, "If you want to be perfect, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me." Um, without the, the word does have life, and it, it is the embodiment of Him. Without Without the word, first of all, you've lost the picture of Messiah. And uh, it's not just about going someplace. Uh, You know, fire insurance, wanting to go to heaven, having a part in the world to come. These are all the wrong answer to the question we ask. And if the question we ask is only, "How how can I get to heaven? Or, how can I not go to hell? Then we've missed the point. It's about a relationship with him. And without the person, there's no point in it. If you could, if you could learn, if you could know that something that you could do or something you could believe would establish eternal life for you, you'd never die. Would that be good enough? You should answer no, because nothing would be good enough without the one that we've been separated from. It's all about getting back to the garden. We want what we had there. We want that walking with Him. We're going to have something better. We are. It's better than the garden. But that is what's lacking, isn't it? It's the relationship. The rich young ruler understood there was something lacking. It's about this relationship. And and uh, I gave you this uh, I gave you this thing from First Kings fourteen. If you want to know what it is to follow after 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 God with your whole heart. To be a person of God's heart. My servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, to do, what only, to do only what was right in my eyes. 1 Kings 14, uh, 8b. That is it. Kept his commandments, followed me with his whole heart, to do only what was right in my eyes. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your love for us. We know that... Uh, you look upon us with love when we ask these questions. Uh, we, Father, we thank you that you have given us the mind and the, and the passion to ask these questions. Father, it is our prayer, it is our deep hope that we might, might not turn away, uh, that we might not uh, walk away sad, uh, that no one would walk away sad from this, but, Father, that they would do as you instructed, uh, to give all that we have away and to come and follow you. Father, we thank you for this perfect message and its completeness in our, in our most deep and uh, abiding desire, and that is to return to a relationship with the King of the universe. We pray this in our Master Yeshua's name. Amen. No homework next week. Question.